Good morning, CPC. My name is Will Cody, and I'm the campus minister at Austin P for RUF, and it's a pleasure to be here this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you could open them to Luke chapter 19, we're going to be looking at um, a parable of Jesus, um, often called the parable of the Minas. So Jesus is, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem at this point in Luke, and he's in a small town called Jericho, and he's about to set off on this 15-mile walk to the rest of the way to the end of his trip in Jerusalem. And in our text here, he takes a moment, he stops, and he tells this story to the crowds that are following and listening to him. Let's hear Jesus speak to us today from Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second man came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever. Will you pray with me? Father, we need your help this morning. We cannot understand anything, and we cannot uh, change. We cannot be changed unless uh, by your Spirit. So we ask the help of your Spirit to help us to understand and to change our hearts this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I wonder what is one of your worst experiences waiting. Have you ever had a really bad experience waiting? I think we all have. I'm going to tell you one of mine. Um, after college, I went to Seoul, South Korea to teach English, and my first job there in South Korea was at a public elementary school, and it was a great job, and one of the reasons was that I loved my coworkers. For some reason, they loved me. My principal, he loved me. I don't know why, um, but there was this like teacher social club that he put me into, so the teachers, they would go on these different trips throughout the year, and after about two or three months of working at this school, it was our first big trip. And we're going to go to Saraksan, it's a, a mountain a couple hours away from Seoul. And so they're planning on, the, the principal tells me, 
the plan they have for everybody to get there. They want to do an early morning hike, a sunrise hike. But there was a problem. And the problem was that they're planning on leaving the school, meeting at the school, and leaving there at 2 in the morning on Saturday from the school. And the problem is I don't have a car, and all public transportation ends about 10.30 at night. But it's okay because the principal has a plan to get me there because he really wants me to be on this trip hiking with him. So here's his plan. His plan, is what he told me in his office, was um, he wants me to take the subway at 10.30 at night, come to the school, and then I will meet up with the security guard that sleeps and stays at the school, and I will um, sleep with the security guard in his little office, and then at 2 o'clock I'll wake up and come out and join the teachers, and we'll go on our trip together. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't really, that does not sound fun at all, sleeping with some strange man in his little room. <laughs> but I still want to go on this adventure, and um, I can't say no at this point to the principal because he's doing all this for me. So Friday night rolls around, and um, I was actually, I actually had a, like a blog, travel blog I had at the time. I went back and looked it up, and this is what I wrote on, the tr- on my blog for this night. I wrote, this is what I wrote. Friday night, I came to the school at 10.30 p.m. to sleep with the security guard. I think I woke him up because he didn't look very happy with me. I fell asleep pretty quickly, but then he started snoring. I banged the floor and made as much noise as I could, but he wouldn't stop. So I got up, put my clothes on, and asked him, I don't know what clothes I had to put on. So I got up, put my clothes on, and asked him to let me out. So I hung around until 2 a.m. When, when I finally met up with the teachers. And then we had a fun trip. But what followed was um, hours of the most excruciating waiting that I've ever had to do. This was right before smartphones. This was, uh, there's nowhere to sleep. Everything's closed. I didn't have anything on my iPod to listen to. I just remember laying, just sitting on this bench and just being for like three hours until the teacher showed up. I hate waiting. That was one of the worst examples of waiting I ever had to do. Waiting can be one of the most annoying and boring, and depending on what you're waiting for, it can be one of the most anxiety-riddled um, experiences we can, we can have. We're, and we're all waiting. I bet, we're all, I bet if we took a poll here, we're all waiting for something right now. Maybe you're waiting for an upcoming vacation. Maybe you're waiting to hear um, news about a friend's health. Maybe you're waiting for a word on a job or for school to start, or maybe you're already waiting for school to end. Um, but Jesus, you know, in our parable, he is going to, he's, he's pointing us to the thing that we are all waiting for. We can all join in waiting for this, his return. And what, what does it look like, Jesus shows us here, what does it look like to wait well for his return? What does it look like to wait for his return well? We're in Luke, and the anticipation in Luke 19 as it goes forward is ramping up, and Jesus is only a few hours away from Jerusalem, and his disciples were all expecting the kingdom of God to appear any moment. They thought that at any moment, you know, Jesus, when he walks, waltzes into Jerusalem, he's going to install himself as the heir to David's throne. He's going to enact this cataclysmic end to all the oppressive Romans, and he's going to finally make things right. This is what they're waiting for. This is what they're expecting to happen. And as we know, this is not Jesus' plan. This is not what actually ended up happening. So Jesus is taking all of this anticipation that they have, and he's hijacking it to teach them about what it looks like to wait well, to wait on his return well. We are in a very similar position 
to these original hearers because we are waiting also for Jesus to do your thing. Get rid of evil. We're wanting Jesus to return. We're wanting Jesus. We're waiting for Jesus to return and to rule and to dispel everything that is corrupt, everything that is evil, all the terrible news we've been hearing the past couple weeks, everything that reeks of death and even death itself. This is what we are waiting for. This is where our hope is. And as we wait, Jesus teaches his listeners, the original audience, and he teaches us, there are things that we need to know and there are things that we need to do while we wait. So the big idea of this text, of our text today, is that Jesus is coming back to rule as king. And all those good things I just talked about that we're waiting for. Jesus is coming back to rule as king. And because Jesus is coming back to rule as king, we should, and these are our three points, we should do business for our returning king. We should look forward to our returning king. And we should be faithful to our returning king. So our first point from this text is that we are to do business for our returning king. Look with me if you have your Bible, or maybe we can have it on the screen a little bit. But in verse 12, if not, it's okay. Look with me in verse 12 as the scene of Jesus opens the parable to this scene. Jesus says, A nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So we have a nobleman and how the story opens, he is going to go to a distant country to receive a kingdom. And he gathers all of his servants together and he says, while I'm gone, I got something for you to do. Now, this is not a common practice today to go into a far country to receive a kingdom, um, but the original hearers would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. This actually happened recent to their history when Herod the Great, King Herod the Great, when he died, his son Archelaus experienced this very same thing. After Herod the Great died, Archelaus was now in charge of Jerusalem and Judea, and he went to Rome to go to, and might have heard this guy, Julius Caesar. He went to go meet with Julius Caesar in Rome, and he was requesting the title of king. He was the ruler there, but he wanted to be called a king. And you can't just, in those days, it's, you, you can't just let everybody call themselves king. You're going to have a problem. So you have to go to Julius Caesar yourself and ask to have this title. So he goes all the way to, um, to Rome to request this title. But another group of Jewish leaders rushed to Rome as well, because they did not like Archelaus, and they did not want him to have these titles. They did not want him to have this power. And what ended up happening was they got there, and they complained to Caesar, and he got to plead his case. In the end, Caesar kind of, he let him have his power, but never gave him that title. But this is a story that would have happened very, very recently, and even geographically near this area where Jesus is. So the original audience would have known the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. So this nobleman in our story, he goes to a far country, like Archelaus did, to receive this kingdom, to receive from the highest king, receive his kingship of the local king. And while the nobleman, here's the, here's the point, while the nobleman is away, he cannot do business because he's not physically present. So he wants the business to continue in where he is. So he calls 10 of his servants and he gives them each one mina. And last week we talked about talents. Talents like 20 years salary. A mina is three months' salary. So it's not a lot, but it's not nothing. It's significant. 
So he gives them each a mina, and he tells them basically, I want you, while I'm gone, I want you to engage in business while I'm gone, until I come back. I want you to do my business with my money until I come back. He wants, he wants his money to expand. He wants to expand his money. He's saying, like, start a, um, a sandal business. Start a sandal business and make my money grow. Um, invest in this new fishing net, fishing net technology that's coming out. I want you to invest in that, and I want you to make my money grow. I want you to guys to invest in a rocket that can be reused and then uh, save us a ton of money so we can explore space. Put your money in something that's going to grow the mina. So these servants are going to be his hands, and these servants are going to be his agents until he returns. He's not going to physically be there, and he has business for them to do. And they are going to represent him while he's gone. Now, you might have figured it out already, but we are these servants, right? Jesus is not physically present on the earth. He's died. He's resurrected. He's ascended into heaven. And we are his hands. We are his body. Even Paul calls us, the church, his body. But God, Jesus has gone on a long journey, so to speak. And all our hope is in his return. Remember, he... Uh, he ascended into heaven. How does the Apostles' Creed go? He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. Right now, he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus is not physically here. And the point of this parable so far is that he has given you and he has given me business to do for him. Now, as I was reading the commentaries on this, there are some differences as to what exactly the mina represents. Um, but one pastor put it this way that I, that I read, and it kind of fits everything else. The mina, what is this one mina that everybody gets? The one mina is your life. We all get one. This is the new life that God has graced you with. What are you going to do with this new life that God has? has given to you to do business for him. Your life is to do business for him. Because you were once not someone who was interested in these things. You were once someone like those citizens that it mentions here, who we're not going to get too deep into, but those citizens that hated the king and sent the, you know, a delegation off because they hated him. They would never want to work for him. They would never want to use their life for this king. But that old self of yours that hated Jesus, that hated him ruling your life, is dead now. Jesus met you, and he owned you, and he saved you from yourself. He saved you from your sins, and he changes you so that you would do his work. We are in the business of doing his work. We are his hands. We are his ears. We are his mouth on this earth. You know, the, uh, I love Heidelberg Catechism. First question, some of y'all probably haven't memorized, but the question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, what is your only comfort in life and death? Is that I am not my own, but I belong, soul and body, in life, in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He owns us. We do his work. And if this is true, then what is your life supposed to look like? What are we supposed to do with this life that we've been given and the simple answer is that we are to be faithful to the king with your life while he's away. At the bottom of it all, your motive and your desire is to faithfully serve the king with the whole of your life, with the whole of our lives. So God has put you 
insert your name here, God has put you into specific families. He's put you into specific neighborhoods. He's put you into specific places of power. He's put you into specific places of weakness. Um, You've got specific friends. And he wants you to use your life to do business for him there. He has called you and he has chosen you to represent him in all the places he's put you in your life. We're going to look at specific examples in a moment. But what should, if this is true, that we are to do business for our returning king, um, what is, Jesus actually gives us a great motivation in this text. You might not have noticed it. But this is our second point. We should look forward to our returning king. His return should motivate us the way, it should motivate us in the way we do business. It, it should um, ramp, our anticipation should ramp up thinking about his return. And here's, here's how. Um, one of the worst jobs that I ever had in my life was Blockbuster Video. <laughs> Did anybody here ever work at Blockbuster Video? Heck, yeah, okay. All right. So Blockbuster Video, worst job I've ever had. <laughs> I've had a lot of jobs. And um, it wasn't like objectively hard. You're not like lugging around like videotapes or anything and breaking your back. But it was grueling and I didn't like it because it was the only job I had where you a- I actually got paid minimum wage. I've never, it's the only place I've ever been paid minimum wage, which was 5.15 back in the old days. Um, and I was very happy when Blockbuster kicked the bucket finally. <laughs> but it was just not fun because you didn't get paid that much. And it was just, what am I doing here? But one of the jobs that I loved the most was actually my first job in Chattanooga when I was in high school. I think I was 14. And I was uh, a host at a hostess, host at a um, restaurant. And I got my regular salary, which was like $8 an hour. And then somehow, I think this is a mistake or something, because I would get tip share from all the stuff that's going on. I would get tip share at the end of the night too. So I would make, I'd be making my regular salary Plus, sometimes I get like over $100. I'm 14 years old. I'm getting over $100 for a night's work of, of work, like six hours of work. It was nuts. It's definitely a mistake. But it was a huge motivator, and it completely changed my attitude to work. I knew what was coming at the end of that Friday night um, of not very hard work, and I actually got to really enjoy it, and I did my best at it because I loved it. Now, what's, I had two completely different attitudes in those two jobs. And it sounds a little selfish, but it's all over the Bible. The reward that we get for doing business for him should motivate us. The reward I got at Hops, that restaurant I worked at, really motivated me. The lack of reward at Blockbuster demotivated me. The rewards that we get from Jesus for doing business for him should be a great motivation for us. And it's, it's not the only motivation for doing business for him, but it's a big one. It's all over the Bible. Look with me in verses 16 through 19. When the king returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So he comes back from his trip. He's looking to see what they did. The first came before him and said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So the nobleman comes back, and he orders his servants to come up and show me what you've done with with what kind of business have you done for me. And the first servant comes up. He had one mina at first, and he's turned it into ten minas. He's invested it in very well. And the king tells him, well done. Because you've done this, you get ten cities. You're going to be over and in charge of ten cities. 
And to the one who had five, he gave him five cities. And this is kind of like a staggering escalation. You went from like three months' salary, having three months' salary, to having um, ten cities. So, you know, five cities, you know, um, you get Memphis, you get Knoxville, you get Clarksville, you get Chattanooga, you get, no- I don't know all the cities in, t- in Tennessee. Um, but one guy even gets 10 cities. So what, is, what this nobleman, what this king is doing is he's been, given a, he's been given authority by the big king, right? And just like the nobleman king gave authority and agency to his servants over the money, he's going to take, there's a, the big king has given him authority over this land, and now he's dividing it up and letting his servants, the ones with the minus, rule over that land and represent him even more. And the reward is just exponentially more huge than what they originally were entrusted with. So when I was in, um, before I did RUF, I, I was a, um, a youth director while I was in seminary. And um, I've, been, um, I've been presented with lots of weird questions, lots of weird issues from students all over the place. And one of the issues that I was surprised has come up more than I ever thought it would, would be the issue of eternity. Maybe there's a generational thing, I don't know. But a lot of people get really uneasy when they think about eternity. Maybe you've laid in bed at night and thought, forever? Oh, that's so weird. <laughs> uh, it freaks a lot of people out. And I think this text helps us. Eternity is not going to be some disembodied you floating around in the clouds and, or sitting in a room forever. Um, there's a sense in which eternity should be weird to us because we've never really experienced it because everything dies and everything ends and everything changes. But Jesus gives us a glimpse, and there's more throughout the Bible, about what eternity looks like. So here's a little hint from here and other places. We are going to rule the earth. That's what eternity is going to look like. Us ruling the earth. Like we were supposed to do. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2? We were supposed to rule the earth as, as uh, representing God. We're going to have work to do in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. There was, there was work, you know, before the fall, there was work. And there's going to be work Um, when everything is restored. It's going to be good work. It's going to be fulfilling work. It's going to be great. It's going to feel good. It's not going to be frustration. It's not going to be toilsome and meaningless. Um, For example, uh, Revelation chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation chapter 5, John writes there that um, Jesus will have completely made us a kingdom of priests and we shall reign on the earth. We are going to reign on this earth. We're going to rule and reign on this earth. Uh, Genesis 20, um, I'm sorry, Revelation 22 says that the Lord will be our light and we will reign together with him forever and ever. Now this dispels like a ton of natural misconceptions that we might have coming into thinking about eternity. First of all, he says we're going to be doing things. We're going to be reigning as his under king. We're reigning as his under kings and queens, as our text even says. Secondly, eternity is not some disembodied state, but we are going to live on this earth the very earth that you woke up on this morning, the very earth that's outside of these windows and in here, I guess, too, this is the place where we are going to be living and ruling and reigning free of sin and free of death. And finally, we are going to get rewards. We are going to get rewards. When Jesus returns to reign on the earth, he is going to give rewards to, for the things that we have done, the things that we have given up, uh, there's several places in the Bible that actually lists exactly, you're going to get a reward for this. And here's a, uh, here's a few very plain examples. <clears throat> you will re- receive rewards for the things that you have given up and suffered for on account of Jesus. You'll get rewards for this. You're going to get a reward for the good use you make of your specific abilities and the place and power 
that God has given you. So God gives you power. He wants you to use that power like he does to enable people, to, give, to help people, to defend people. Um, you're going to get rewards for loving your enemies. You are going to get rewards for selfless generosity. You are going to get rewards for caring for and defending the poor. You are going to get rewards for serving other Christians and ministering just to other Christians because they're Christians. Um, these are the ones that Jesus specifically names. There's, we'll get more than this. I'm sure he's going to, even more rewards than we thought are going to be bestowed on us when he returns. What does it look like in your life, I'm wondering, in your specific situation to believe this? Can you think of any way specifically that you should be looking forward to the return of the king and the rewards that he brings? Um, it's a little weird that we are supposed to be like working doing good works for reward, right? But this is not the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is um, somehow you do some secret, I don't know, some kind of, you do something and you get a bunch of rewards in this life. That's what the prosperity gospel is about. Um, you know, Joel Osteen, his book, Your Best Life Now is Your Best Life Now. This is not about now. This is about when Jesus returns and we should be looking forward to these rewards. Now, the Bible is kind of vague about what these rewards look like. It looks like there's some authority, good authority that we're going to be given over things, over something, over parts of the earth, over things that are happening here. Um, and I, it's a little vague, I think, because we won't, quite, we won't really quite get to understand it until we're experiencing it. But there's a day here. So listen, there's a day where Jesus, when Jesus comes, you're going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to say to you something like this ruler says in this parable. I'm just going to use my own name because it'll make me feel good. But Jesus is going to say something like this. You, Will Cody, the money that you gave to the church, it was used to help a struggling family that you never even got to meet. And people heard and believed through the preaching, Bible studies, the fellowship, the worship. Here is your reward. Jesus is going to say, you, Will Cody, you put your name there if you want. You, Will Cody, you didn't hit your sister back. You didn't hit your sister back when she was acting like your enemy. Instead, you shared some French fries and chicken nuggets with her in return. You loved your enemy in that moment. Here is your reward. You, Will Cody, you were promoted to a manager. And instead of using your new power and influence for your own benefits, you actively prevented corruption. And you went out of your way to help those with less power. Well done, good servant. Here is your reward. You will, Cody, when you realized that your marriage was in trouble, you humbled yourself, and it was scary. You went to counseling in order to love your wife and your children. Here is your reward. You will, Cody, you welcomed the new person that came to your school. You had a new student come to your school, and they're so scared because they don't know anybody. You went out of your way to welcome them and make that, make that outsider feel like an insider. Or at your work, same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Here is your reward. Jesus is coming back as king, and why, one big reason that we should look forward to his return is because he is giving us rewards. And this leads us to our third point. Because Jesus is coming back, we should be faithful to our returning king. Look with me. We won't read it all. Just look at the, the rest of this parable, starting in verse 20. A third servant comes up and says, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, and you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. And in response, the king takes it away, and he gives it to the guy that has ten minus. 
So this third, this third um, servant, instead of actually doing any business for this king, he decides not to do business for this king. Instead, he takes his mina, takes his life, for example, and just hides it away. Hides it away to keep it safe. He does not work for this returning king. He's not faithful to the king with what he has been entrusted with, this life. And in return, the, ting, the, the king takes away his mina and gives it to somebody who can actually do something with it. So this servant gets no reward. This really reminds me in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul gives a, um, a brief like, analogy picture of this guy that's in a fire in his house and he jumps out of his house and he just barely saved. All his clothes are burned off and he's got nothing. And it's because... And the, the, the message there was that nothing he had done, none of his business was for God. None of his business, all that stuff was just flammable and, and um, chaff. So he never made it out of the fire with anything that was actually, ta- you could hold, anything that was real. It wasn't the king's business, so it was worthless and burned up. That's what this guy reminds me of. Now, how is this servant, how did he get to this place? Um, he says, it says here that he was afraid because of the king. And he was afraid because the king, he believed him to be a severe and basically stealing what, was, what wasn't his, being a thief. But from everything we've heard about this king, he's great, right? He shares his power. That's something that's rare. He shares his power with other people, those people that are under him. He rewards his servants exponentially compared to what they have accomplished. And, you know, we, have, we are very... Um, skeptical of authority figures, but suspend that for a second. If the big king trusts this guy, if the big king likes this guy and made him a king, well, that means he's a good king. What keeps us from being faithful with the new lives that God has given us? It's that we start to think, like this guy, against what's true, we start to think of God like we used to, like those citizens that hated him, those citizens that never wanted him to rule over them. Why are we not hospitable to new people? Why are we tempted not to be generous and to hoard our money? Why are we tempted to hit our sisters back? Um, It's because we don't believe that God is good and taking care of us. We have to, I have to take care of myself because he won't is my underlying assumption. Why would I make, why would I ever make myself uncomfortable? Why would I not live in the biggest comfortable safety net I could possibly create if, at the end of the day, I have an uncaring and maybe even malevolent God? Why would I ever do that? One reason that the first two servants were so successful, it seems, in contrast to this guy, is that they knew that the king had their back. As they did business, they were free to fail. They were free. They knew that when he, that when he comes back, everything's going to be okay. They know that when, he, when the king comes back, he'll set everything right. You think this king, like if he came back and he saw that the servants were, uh, they were, they were being faithful to their king, but things just weren't working out or they were failing and fumbling, how do you think this king would treat them? It says in the text that it was their faithfulness. That was what was the basis for their reward. It was, the, it was their faithfulness, not the, all the stuff that they produced, actually. That's what it comes down to. Is like, is your life... Is your life a clinging, des- desperate, se- um, um, is it this clinging self-preservation, I guess? Is it this, or is it this adventure where you are just trusting the king to do what he says, do the business that he puts into your life, and just let him work it all out? And then we get eternal rewards in the end, in the, end of the day. Is it 
So my question is, is there one place maybe where you've noticed, you can think of right now, is there one place in your life where you are living out of desperate, clinging, self-preservation, where you're hoarding your time, you're hoarding your money, you're hoarding your comforts or your security? Where is one place maybe in your life you can think about this we can pray about where you can cling instead to the king who is returning, who's got your back? He's got your back as you do his business. This king who is also bringing these rewards for you to do his business. Um, The only way that you can ever do this is if you know and trust that he is faithful to you. The only way we can ever begin to do his business is to be able to rest and trust in him. Because like this parable, so, you know, I did the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee a couple weeks ago, and it's kind of open-ended at the end. It's like, what's going to happen? It's kind of open-ended. This parable is also open-ended. Will the, like, will the servant, is he going to realize what he's done and then, you know, ask again to, for, for a mina to be faithful to this king? Um, are these, these uh, citizens that are about to get slaughtered, is there still time for them to ask for forgiveness? He leaves it open for us. I think there is. I think this king is a good king. <laughs> because is, as this king is Jesus, think about what's going on in the story of Luke right now. Where's Jesus headed right now? The king who is actually telling the story is about to enter a city filled with people that hate him. And when they're killing Jesus on the cross, it's in Luke's gospel too, this very gospel, where Jesus cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Jesus, in his time that he spends dying, he takes time to pray for the people that are killing him. This is outrageous. His faithfulness, his faithfulness even to these people that are killing him, his enemies. And you were his enemy at one time too, and I was his enemy too. And how, was, how did he treat you when you were his enemy? He was faithful to you. <laughs> Weird. He forgave you. He was faithful to you. He's faithful to the faithless. He, serves, he served you. He served me. He served them until he died, even taking the punishment for what they were doing to him in that very moment and killing him on the cross. Is Jesus trustworthy? Is he worth doing business for? Does he have your back? Because if you think about it, there's nothing more that he could have done, nothing more that he could do to show his faithfulness even to sinners like us. This king is worth giving up your own business to do his business. He's worth giving up your life for his. Let's pray that God would help us open our eyes so we can trust him. Let's pray. Um, Father, we pray that you would show us that Jesus, we know he's faithful. Many of us here, we know he's faithful. And we need your help, though, to, to rest in it. If there are any here that do not know Jesus as the faithful Savior that he is, would you open their eyes to his faithfulness and his love, even for sinners, especially for sinners. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.